Hey everybody, good morning. Welcome to church today. You guys sounded really good this morning. Thanks for singing with us and joining with us. Good morning everyone joining us online. I'm sure you sounded great too in your living room, wherever you are this morning. We're glad to have you with us this morning as well. Uh, it's hard to believe, but uh, our 16-week journey through the end of Genesis is coming to an end today. Oh, yeah. Um, we're wrapping up not just the, the series, The Destiny, but uh, a journey we actually started when school began, if you can remember that far back. Before we do that, I just want to let you know two things this morning. First of all, as Tim already mentioned, we're gathering Friday and Saturday this week to celebrate Christmas together. I'm excited about that, and I hope you'll join us for that as well. Uh, and then we'll be gathering in the new year, January 1st, uh, is the next Sunday that we'll be gathering together. And we're going to be starting a brand new teaching series that morning called Fear not raising courageous kids. So I don't know how many kids you have in your life or what kind of relationship you have with them, but this is a series for parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, foster parents, uh, school teachers, and just the church in general. It's a series about uh, raising kids of genuine hope and genuine courage in the world that we live in today. I don't know about you. But the world we live in now is not the kind of world that I grew up in. And there can be a lot of fear uh, for those of us watching the up-and-coming generation grow up. And this series is about uh, how we want to be a church together that raises kids up uh, who hope in the Lord and uh, hear and understand his call on their lives together. Okay, so that's coming in January, just five weeks. We're not going to uh, do another marathon series like we've been doing this fall. Five weeks on that. And then the other thing I want to let you know about this morning, I had a lot of really fun follow-up conversations from the sermon last week. Thank you uh, for all of those. Thanks for everybody that reached out and sat down and talked with me. And uh, I felt the need after those conversations for a clearer book plug this morning, okay? So a lot of those conversations went something like this. You know, I hear what you're saying, Tim, uh, but I am not excited about heaven. It really freaks me out. Sounds kind of weird. I just know I don't want to go to hell. So that's what I'm excited about. I want to make a plug again for this book. I mentioned it last week. It's called Heaven by Randy Alcorn. And I would encourage you to make this your Christmas gift to yourself this year. If you've never picked it up, if you've never read it, I think, and I'm right, uh, this, is, this is the best book on the subject that I think exists in the world today. Three reasons I appreciate it. Number one, it looks thick, it really is not. There are like 40 chapters here, they're all really short, and you just pick the one you want to read. You don't actually have to read all the way through. I've actually never read the whole thing, so there you go. Uh, second reason is it is just loaded with scripture. There are a lot of books about heaven on the market. And I can understand if you have picked one of those up, why you would be a little freaked out. But honestly, most of them are not worth the paper they're written on. People are seriously just making stuff up at this point. What Randy Alcorn does in this book is string together everything that's, that God has said about heaven and together like a string of pearls for us. And it is really, really helpful. And the third reason is it's just encouraging. Uh, if you're a follower of Jesus, every time the scripture mentions what, where we're going when we die, it is meant for your encouragement. And so if, if you find yourself 
freaked out, bored, uninterested, I don't know, by heaven. I encourage you to pick this book up. It might be one of the most important things you reflect on in the next year, okay? And if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, I would still encourage you to pick this book up it, it, because it, it talks about what is at stake in this conversation and what it is that God has invited you to, okay? So everybody got my book plug? Say, I got it. All right, it's time for our scripture reading this morning. Our last scripture reading in the book of Genesis. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 50. That'll be on page 44 if you want to follow along in the uh, Bibles under the chairs in front of you. As I said, we're bringing to a close not just this series, The Destiny, uh, but the story of Joseph. And the whole book of Genesis actually uh, is what we're looking at. The end of the whole book of Genesis we're looking at this morning. Genesis chapter 50, verse 15. And uh, re just remember, if you weren't here last week, Joseph's father, Jacob, has just died. And this is uh, what happens next. Everybody there? Say, I'm there. Yes. All right, here we go. Chapter 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. And so Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. I also want to read this from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 37. Jesus says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of the reasons that I think I love the book of Genesis is because in it, we are presented with stories of people who have no church or synagogue to go to. They do not have the scriptures, at least as we would understand them right now. Uh, I'm sure many of these stories were written down in some form, but they don't have the scriptures, we know them. There's no place where they can go to hear about and learn about God. It's a collection of stories of people who are uh, meeting God in just really personal ways. 
and wrestling with the question, what is this God really like? Like, can we trust him? Or, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but if you read, you know, Abraham's story, Jacob's story, there are places where they're kind of saying, or is he crazy? Is the God that I'm encountering, is he safe? Is he okay? Can I trust him or is he crazy? Uh, that's another sermon some other day. But here at the end of Genesis, you know, the, the author's wrapping up the whole thing to communicate a couple of things. Number one, yes, you can trust God. And secondly, the God that you are encountering, whatever else he is, he is someone who wants to walk with you. And then we're going to give it, we have one more challenge from Joseph's life this morning too, okay? So let's just take a look at the, the scripture we read, chapter 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead, they said, maybe Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. There are a few things that threaten the unity of families more than the death of a loved one, especially if that loved one is the head of the family. And in Jacob's case, you know, he, he became a very important person both in Israel and in Egypt. And so with Jacob gone, you know, conventional wisdom would, would dictate that Joseph is finally free to do all the things to his brothers that maybe he hadn't done because dad was around. Do you, do you know what I mean? You've probably seen this in your family or other people's families. But if you can remember back to the scene of this family's reunion, back to chapter 45, when Joseph finally revealed himself to these brothers, it says that he went to each one and he wept over them, he kissed them, and he embraced them. But 17 years has gone by now. In 17 years, a lot can happen in a family in 17 years, right? Yeah. New grievances pile up and there's been more time to really think about what they've done to their brother and so on. And why shouldn't he turn out in the end to be just like them? Their fear about Joseph, you know, turning on them is not rooted in anything Joseph's done, by the way. For 17 years, all he's done is care for his brothers. Their fear is probably rooted, you know, in their own dispositions. I, they're probably saying to themselves, I know what I would do if I were in Joseph's shoes. So why wouldn't he turn out to be the same way? Real forgiveness and, and genuine grace are rare. We don't come by them a ton in life. And so when we do encounter genuine forgiveness, we often don't know what to do with them. This holds up a mirror for us, by the way, to our own relationship with Christ. Many of us, having come to faith in Jesus many years ago, uh, coming to uh, be received by him and to be welcomed by him, still find ourselves asking the question, you know, five and ten and thirty years later, well, why shouldn't he turn out to be basically like us in the end? I mean, a lot has happened over five or ten or thirty years. Why shouldn't God be basically like us? In the end, after the initial flush of discovery and repentance and reuniting and all this other stuff, how can we continue to still be okay all of these years later? So look at what the brothers do. Verse 16, they send a message to Joseph. Everybody notice they're avoiding their brother now. 
They're not going to him personally. They're keeping their distance. And they send this message. Hey, dad gave this command before he died. Don't kill your brothers. That's, I'm summarizing. But that's a lie. Jacob never, Jacob never gave a command like that. Jacob wasn't worried about Joseph's response. So here at the, at the close of Genesis, these guys are kind of replaying what happened in the Garden of Eden. Uh, it's the same old scene. They're hiding from Joseph like Adam and Eve hid from God, and they're lying to him, and they're kind of playing this game with him. In verse 18, when they do finally come into Joseph's presence, it says they, they bow down and they say, you know, we don't want to be your brothers. We're not worthy to be your brothers in a sense. Let us be your slaves. Let us be your servant. It's the same game that we play with God. Jesus tells a story in the New Testament, Luke chapter 15, about a son who goes crazy. He goes, you know, off and wastes his inheritance. He returns home and he says to dad, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Just let me be a servant in your house. That's exactly what these brothers are doing and we do the same thing. We come to Jesus in faith, understanding we bring nothing to the table except the need for grace. And as years pass, and we become more aware of God's holiness. Okay, so this is the normal Christian life. You come to faith in Jesus and over time, you actually become more aware of the gap between you and God. You, you become more aware of really what you've done to God. And if your awareness of God's mercy doesn't grow at the same time, okay, if your awareness of really what happened at the cross does not also grow over time, you will start to hide from God. You'll start to fake things. You'll start to play games with God. You'll start to make excuses and all other kinds of things. Don't you think that Joseph's brothers went through something like that? I mean, so after the initial shock of seeing that Joseph is prime minister of Egypt, they have 17 years to discover what that really means. So they see Joseph ride through his chariot, ride through town on his chariot, and all the Egyptians bow the knee. They get to see that, you know, the massive projects that Joseph's a part of. They see the respect that Joseph commands everywhere that he goes. When Joseph gives a command, soldiers snap to, yes sir, he plays racquetball with Pharaoh on Fridays and he's in the card club with Pharaoh's wife on Saturdays. You know what I mean? Everywhere that he goes, they have 17 years to see, oh my goodness, our brother runs the world. Do you know what I mean? And there's, I, I can just imagine them saying, we threw him in a pit. We threw him in a pit. And then we auctioned him off to slavery. And we are in so much trouble. Haven't you had this experience with God in your own lives? Subsequent you know, years pass by and you're saying, as you get to know who, who God really is, you say, oh my goodness. I didn't realize what I had really been doing. And I think that Joseph's brothers have had an experience like that. And so they begin to withdraw and hide. And if our understanding of God's mercy doesn't grow along with those things, we'll do the same thing. And so when they send this message to Joseph, how's he respond in verse 17? It says that he weeps. He gets this message. It's clear his brothers still think he's basically like they are. And he weeps. 
It's an incredible window into Joseph's heart for his brothers. And, and I'm, I want to make the case it's an incredible window into the heart of God for you as well. Genesis, part of its purpose is to help us understand at bottom, at rock bottom, when push comes to shove, what is God like? And what we see throughout is that God wants to be in relationship with us. Now, it needs to be said, of course. You know, the God that Israel was meeting when they received this book was an incredibly dangerous God. Incredibly dangerous God. They had seen what God had done to Egypt. And they had heard the command, you know, don't, don't come near to the mountain. Don't even touch the mountain or you'll die and things like that. But what, they're, what Genesis is showing us is that at the bottom, at the rock bottom, the God you are encountering is someone who wants to be with you and for you to draw near to him. In 1678, this guy named John Bunyan wrote a book called Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ. It's a whole book uh, on one verse. So the verse that we read in our scripture reading, John 6:37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, Jesus says, I will never cast out. So there's a mountain uh, John Bunyan says, a mountain of theology in this one verse. And here are some things that John Bunyan points out. I just want to share these with you. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me, not most. In other words, once the Father sets his love upon you, you will come. All that the Father gives me. In other words, our redemption is not a matter of a gracious son trying to calm down this uncontrollably wrathful father. The father is the one who initiates the whole process of our redemption in the first place. All that the father gives me, Jesus says, not haggles with me over. It's the father's delight to give you to the son. All that the father gives me will come, Jesus says. So, the Father is clearly sovereign over the whole redemptive enterprise, but we are not robots and we are not dragged kicking and screaming to Jesus. You will come, Jesus says, on your own. And whoever comes to me, Jesus says, I'll never cast out. Who's, who's, a, ho, who's a whoever? If you're a whoever, just raise your hand just real quick. It should be everybody. I understand it's Sunday, you know, it's 11 o'clock service. Whoever comes to me. So if you're here this morning and you're asking yourself, well, can that apply to me after all that I've done, after who I've become, et cetera, et cetera? Whoever. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, Jesus says. And whoever comes to me. So the, the invitation is not to a, just a set of doctrines. It's not just to church. It's not even just to the gospel. The call is to a person, Jesus. Just as the brothers needed to come to Joseph, you are being called and invited to a person, Jesus. And this is what John Bunyan says. He says, if there weren't in us a fear of being cast out, Jesus would not have needed to say this, but he does. And then he goes on, quote, But I am a great sinner, say you. 
I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I am an old sinner, say you. I will never cast you out, says Christ. I'm a hard-hearted sinner, say you. I will never cast you out, says Christ. I'm a backsliding sinner, say you. I will never cast you out, says Christ. I've served Satan all my days, say you. I will never cast you out, says Christ. I've sinned against light, say you. I will never cast you out. I've sinned against mercy, say you. I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I have no good thing to bring with me, say you. And I will never cast you out, says Christ. What is God's disposition toward you at his rock, rock bottom? Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Do you understand why Joseph wept? And do you see what I mean when I say that that his heart is a picture of the Father's heart for you as well? This is what the Creator God is like. Now we need really good, really strong teaching on the wrath of God and the law of God. In our homes and in our churches and in our evangelism, we we need to be comfortable and we need to be okay talking about the wrath of God and his law. And we need to be okay to say, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We talked about that this fall. When the brothers first encountered their brother Joseph, he hid himself from them. And we said there can be no relationship with God. There can be no reconciliation until we come to grips with what we have done to God. Okay? But that is not today's sermon. Others of us need to also come to grips with the tears of God. And to hear him say to you clearly, I will never cast anyone out who comes to me. Having come to faith in Jesus, some of us need to understand what it is that God desires for us. And that is that we should draw near and to hear him say, welcome home. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And in verse 19, he says to them also, do not fear. As for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant for, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This is the theme of the whole book of Genesis now. This is the theme verse of Genesis, and it connects us with the central tension of the Bible and the secret to Joseph's life. This is what carried Joseph through unimaginable suffering. This is what kept Joseph grounded at the the pinnacle of success. And this is what allowed Joseph to genuinely forgive his brothers. Coming to grips with the fact that he was not God. And in the midst of the will of evil, there is another will that was working all things together for good. If you are familiar with the story of Genesis, you may recall that Genesis begins 
with with the serpent saying to Eve, you can be like God. Why don't you take your destiny into your own hands and live according to your own wisdom and you will be like God, he said. And here at the end, we see Joseph undoing that and saying, I will not live according to my own wisdom. I do not believe I hold my own destiny in my hands and I am not God. Why did God create a world that he knew would go awry? Why did God allow the serpent into the garden in the first place? Why did God not not eliminate sin as soon as it started? Why do we live in a world like the one that we live in today? God has chosen not to give us a theological treatise in response. Instead, what he has done is give us a story. And we're invited in these stories to stand on the sidelines as God, rather than answering the question, manifests his sovereignty, his goodness, his love, his mercy, and his justice. This fall, just in how many chapters? Just in 15 chapters, we've gotten to watch as God parades his, his goodness and mercy from the pit to the slave auction, to the house of Potiphar, to the palace, and now in Goshen. There's this place in Matthew chapter 11 where John the Baptist has some questions about Jesus and he sends his disciples. The disciples come to Jesus they say, hey, what's the deal? Are you the one that we're waiting for or should we go somewhere else? Should we look somewhere else? And Jesus' response is, go and tell John what you have seen and what you have heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. That's my answer. Go tell him what you've seen and go tell him what you've heard. I am who I am, and he's got to figure out what he's going to do with me. I see God doing the same thing here. Can I trust a God who would allow Indeed, who would ordain that evil should prevail for a time in the world? God's answer is Genesis. To say to you and I, look at all you've seen and heard this fall. From the pit, to the slave market, to the house of Potiphar, in prison and in the palace, what have you seen and heard? That everything evil intended for evil God has forced to do good. That's his answer. And that's the message of Genesis. Our God is master of all. He is the God who brings order out of chaos. And he has made a promise stretching all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 that he will bring order out of the chaos that we have created. He is going to win and you can trust him. That's the message of Genesis. In the beginning, our first parents, Adam and Eve, took their destiny into their own hands, said, I'm going to be like God, and I'm going to control things, and brought ruin on the world. Here in the last few verses, Joseph is reversing that decision. I am not God, and I am going to trust him. This is the secret to his suffering, the secret to his success, the secret to his forgiveness, and the secret to his persevering. 
And that's the last challenge I want to leave you with as we close this whole fall together. I just want to draw your attention to the instructions that Joseph gives regarding his bones. Okay? So just like his father Jacob, Joseph gave his family instructions about what to do with his bones. And we talked about why that is last week. I'm not going to belabor the whole point again. But I just want to show you this one thing. In Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11 is, is called the Hall of Faith. In, in that chapter, the author just lays out all these people who trusted God throughout the centuries and why they were so amazing. And this is what Hebrews 11.22 says about Joseph, okay? In fact, this is the only thing that Hebrews 11 says specifically about Joseph. It says, by faith Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave instructions concerning his bones, Think about everything we have talked about for 16 weeks. About Joseph's brothers attacking him and stripping him of his coat and then throwing him in a pit to die of exposure and then taking him out and selling him into slavery and then his time on the auction block and being taken to Potiphar's house and his faithfulness in Potiphar's house and then his faithfulness to God in the midst of that whole situation with Potiphar's wife and then years languishing in prison and yet his faith is not crushed and then he has these two guys, officials from Pharaoh's house you know, coming in and he interprets their dreams and he's thinking, oh this is it, I'm finally and I get out and then they forget him and still his faith perseveres and then at the age of 30 he's plucked out of prison raised to the right hand of Pharaoh he saves the world from starvation he exercises all kind of wisdom and all kinds of vision to rescue the world and then his brothers show up one day and think about the wisdom and the mercy and the justice and the kindness that he shows them and the whole process that he takes them through do you remember this from this fall he takes them through this whole redemptive process and then he does the same thing with Jacob and then for six more years Joseph lives faithfully in Egypt and this is the one thing that Hebrews says is amazing the instructions that he gives regarding his bones okay why of all the things that you could say wow what an incredible man Hebrews says did you see what he did with his bones wow what a man of incredible faith well this is what's going on after all of that, Joseph's faith is epitomized in this, that he bore an Egyptian title, he was married to an Egyptian woman, he had access to all the pleasures of Egypt, he had access to all the power and all the status of Egypt, and yet in his heart, he never became Egyptian. Never. He spent his entire adult life in the shadow of the great pyramids of Egypt. He walked alongside the Sphinx when its nose was still in place. He was deeply, deeply embedded in the social and political and economic life of Egypt. He spent every day working with the most powerful people in the most powerful civilization in that part of the world. For 93 years, Joseph lived in Egypt, and Egypt never lived in Joseph. And as far as the New Testament is concerned, that is amazing. He went to work day after day after day and served the, na the nation of Egypt with all the wisdom and strength and energy that God had given him. But I can just picture him coming home at night to his wife Asenath and his children and pulling them together and saying, just so we're all clear, this is not it, kids. This is not it. And we do not depend on dad's job for our security. We do not depend on the prosperity of Egypt for our peace. 
We belong to the living God. And someday he's going to come get us. And I'm going to be ready. And I want you to be ready. 93 years he lived in Egypt. And somehow Egypt never found its way into Joseph. It's incredible. One of the great sadnesses of my life is to have lived long enough now to see people that I worshipped with and that I've served with in ministry and people that I've loved walk away from Jesus because they fell in love with the things of this world. And it's a tragedy. This may be the greatest thing that any of us do. To say to one another and to say to our families, God has ordained that we should live in Egypt. So be it. May God give us grace to honor him in everything that we do. May he give us grace to do great things with all of the energy that he's given us to do it. God has ordained that we should live in Egypt very well. But God, please don't ever let Egypt live in us. This is what I want for my family. This is what I want for our church, for your families. This is a part of why we're doing this next sermon series in January, Fear Not, about raising courageous kids in a strange world because God chooses the times and places in which we will live. And so this is the time and place that he's put us to raise up this generation for himself. And I would like, I want my boys thinking, I want your kids thinking, okay, if I'm still here, this is because this is where God wants me to be. And I'm going to trust him. And I'm not going to be afraid. And I don't even know how to do those things. But God does. And he has promised me everything that I need to walk with him and to honor him throughout my life. So, if we have to be here, then let us do it with all the strength God has given us to do it. Our God is an awesome God. And he is dangerous. Truly dangerous. But at the rock, rock bottom of God, what you find is someone who has done everything to be with you to reconcile you to himself and you can trust him. If, imagine if Joseph had not trusted God when he was 17, how different his life would look. You can trust him and the time to decide you're going to trust him no matter what is now, not when your life blows up. Because in that day, you will need the theology I've been talking about today deep in your soul. Let's finish the series this way. I'm going to read. I'm just wrap up the whole fall this way. I just want to read from Romans chapter 8. This is my favorite chapter of the whole Bible. And as I read, I want you to think about all we've read about in Joseph's story this fall. I want you to think about your own life this morning as we read it. And then we'll pray together before we wrap up. Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let me give you just a minute right now as we close the fall to just pray. I want you to bring yourself Take some time to give thanks for his grace in your life, the ways that he's carried you thus far. And if you're here today and you know that you need to recommit yourself to the Lord, I invite you to do that as well. has been said we thank you for the life of Joseph thank you for all that you've done and for all that you carried him through thank you God we ask today that you would increase our faith that you would fill us with courage and boldness to walk faithfully with you and once again this morning we just offer ourselves to you you have done everything that needs to be done and you are worthy of our trust, so we offer it to you now. Help us to trust you. Give us grace to trust you more and more and to do so until the very end, until your return or death takes us home. Father, would you bless this church, bless these people in the St. Croix Valley and with everything that really matters, and we pray together that you would allow us to see our kids and our grandkids and one another trusting you more and more every day. Father, would you use them and use us in a mighty way to make the God of Joseph known to each other and to the world around us. Father, I ask specifically that you would arrange just the right conversations this week. God, that you would arrange where we sit at Christmas Eve that you would ordain and appoint conversations and invitations, that we would get to see your hand at work. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Amen. All right, let's stand and sing.